Brian O'Leary, you're an Irish Jesuit and most of your life you have spent studying nation spirituality and you did your doctorate in Rome on it and have written many, many books. And your latest book is called God Ever Greater, Exploring Ignatian Spirituality. Tell me about this book and who it's aimed at. This book is the result of many years, both of teaching, but also of practical work in spiritual direction and giving the spiritual exercises. So in a way, it mirrors the structure of my own life uh, in ministry, that it's both an answer to questions of understanding, what is Ignatian spirituality, but also questions around how a person may be invited to live it, to give themselves the opportunity to take Ignatian spirituality as a tool on their journey to God. So the structure of the book is that the first part, uh, six chapters, uh, is devoted to questions of understanding. So I use history there and I use biography. I also use some of the documents from Ignatius himself and uh, from the early Jesuits, and all the time trying to say, well, this is what Ignatius seemed to have in mind, this is what he was doing, this is what he was offering people, but all on that level of understanding. Then the second half is much simpler in a way, written more simply, seven short chapters where the same themes are brought up, but brought up in a way that is geared more to inviting people to explore some of these issues, some of these teachings in their own lives. So those second set of chapters will include more personal examples from life and how Ignatian spirituality might appear today and how we might uh, live it today. My hope is that both parts would appeal to any reader, whether they are beginners in the sense of meeting Ignatian spirituality for the first time, or that they have already have some experience of Ignatian spirituality and want to go further. But there are different ways, I think, in which one could read the book. Uh, an absolute beginner, I would be inclined to think, would get more from beginning with part two. Mm. Begin with the simpler, the more experiential material there. Each uh, of those short chapters ends with a suggestion for prayer, which is taken from the scriptures. So it can be used as uh, meditations leading into prayer. I think that is accessible to anybody. But having done that, then uh, obviously one tends to want to know more. And the more would be part one, you know, the understanding, the background, the history of it, its relationship with theology. All these questions that uh, come up in our minds once we get a foothold on the material itself. So in both part one and part two, the word that I use in the Subtitle, Explorations, I I think is relevant, that I'm exploring in part two different ways in which Ignatian spirituality can impinge on our lives and how we might respond to it. Part one, exploring the meaning of different aspects of Ignatian spirituality and the sources on which they are built. Now, if we take the term Ignatian spirituality, you do something I think that's helpful at the beginning of the book, and that is that you actually 
decide to describe what spirituality is because it is a word that's used an awful lot nowadays, usually used in opposition to the word religious. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Tell us what you see spirituality to be and then in essence Ignatian spirituality. Yes, I suppose it's un- unusual to begin a book in the on Ignatian spirituality and not start with Ignatius. I chose not to do that because I wanted to look at the noun spirituality before the adjective. If we don't know what the noun means, well then what's the use of any adjective isn't very enlightening. So I explore what spirituality means, different aspects of it, different understandings of it. I suppose the the main distinction that I make there is that for many people, spirituality, the word, comes from the human spirit, that each of us has a spirit, a soul, something interior within us that is alive and productive and that has desires and yearnings, but also an interiority that would include struggles and intentions and that. So spirituality, uh, from that point of view, which is the point of view of the human person, technically uh, it's an anthropological approach. Spirituality means anything to do with the spirit within each of us, how that is to be nourished, how that develops, how that can be integrated into the whole of our lives, all all of that uh, scenario. The other meaning of spirituality, which is a more specifically Christian meaning, is that the word spirituality comes from the Holy Spirit, and that's for Christians, the Holy Spirit is given to each one of us, and spirituality is anything to do with the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, it seems to me that that second definition or way of understanding spirituality is the more Christian, but the anthropological, the attention paid to the human spirit has its role to play nevertheless. So it's not totally a neither-or choice that we make between one model of spirituality and the other. But we accept that the Holy Spirit is active in us through inner mechanisms that are purely human. They're part of the inner dynamic that is our human spirit. So that chapter is meant really to get people thinking, even at the beginning, at a fairly deep level as to what we mean by the word, so that when we come on then to look at Ignatius and the spirituality that evolved out of his life and his teaching, that we are, if you like, on more solid ground. In a certain sense, what you've described there as the two aspects of spirituality, the Holy Spirit that Christians believe in, and then the spirit within us that lots of people can espouse, does in some way sum up, would I be right, Ignatius' own view. That's what he, in his exploration of himself, found. Yes, I think so. He wouldn't have had the same questions that we have about the meaning of spirituality. It would have been obvious to him that spirituality is is to do with God, and in a particular way with the working of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that in his own spiritual diary, which comes from the later period of his life, there is an increasing attention given to the Holy Spirit, which wasn't there as explicitly, at least in the earlier writings, including the spiritual exercises, 
But in the spiritual diary where he records these experiences in Rome when he was superior general, that the Holy Spirit somehow forces his or her way into his consciousness more than previously. It's actually quite Trinitarian because he's also praying to the Trinity itself almost as one, and he prays to each of the persons separately. But it's the stress on the Spirit that is new, if you like, in in the way in which he puts it into his description of his inner life and of his prayer. That's interesting. And does that tie in then, and, and I know you deal with this in the book, with the whole area of discernment, both individual discernment and then the communal discernment which you speak about in the book? Yes, discernment is certainly central to what we call Ignatian spirituality. The chapter that I devote to it in the book takes perhaps an unexpected approach in the sense that I don't spend a lot of time until the end of the chapter talking about Ignatius's contribution. In in some ways, I take that for granted. But I look at the whole tradition. I I ask the question, uh, what did Ignatius inherit? And so I I go back to the scriptures, how discernment uh, occurs in the Old Testament stories, how it occurs in the New Testament, and particularly in the teachings of St. Paul. And then I just say, well, Ignatius wasn't coming in at discernment as the one who discovered it, or <laughs> he was building on something which was very strong, not only in the scriptures, but in the experience of the desert fathers and mothers, which is where most people tend to go nowadays, you know, to, to get to the roots of, of discernment. And Ignatius... I believe added to that um, in two ways. First, because he was an excellent teacher and he was able to simplify the rather complex teaching on discernment in the tradition and to make it usable to people. That would be one contribution. The other contribution is that I think he saw more than anybody before him how discernment was linked or could be linked with decision-making. That, I suppose, is what people have latched on to a lot in, in recent years. But he, he contributed a lot to that, because discernment, as it's seen in earlier writings, could be described as simply discernment of spirits. You distinguish between the various spirits, the various influences that are at play on you or within you, but it might stop there. You end up with yes, greater self-knowledge, certainly, and that helps in all sorts of ways on your spiritual journey. But he saw more explicitly that if you're facing a serious decision in your life, you can use the discernment of spirits, but allow it to continue into something else, something, I don't like the word practical, but that's, you know, something more experiential and in the sense of facing major crossroads in our lives and doing so with a certain confidence because we have learned uh, how to discern. That's a very Mm. important gift that he gives. Where do you find that expressed? Is is that something that comes through the exercises? Well, the the exercises are, are the first place, I think, to go. I mean, the exercises are most appropriate for people who are facing a major decision. Um, if a person is thinking of 
making the exercises and comes to me or probably to most people working in this area and asking, you know, well, would it be suitable for me? If the person is facing a major decision, I have no hesitation. Yes, you're almost ideal in a sense that uh, the exercises are geared to this, even though they can fulfill all sorts of other functions as well. I would also think, if I might anticipate to the, the, the chapter on the corporate dimension of Ignatian spirituality, that that kind of decision-making through discernment is very clear in the discernment of the First Fathers, which is the document which records the discernment that the early companions were making on whether or not to become a religious order. And that document uh, is called the Deliberation, usually. Uh, It spells out in great detail the different stages through which the group went, the difficulties they faced, the fact that they had to change methodology halfway through because the methodology they started with answered their easy question, if you like, but faltered when it came to the more difficult questions. And all of that is recorded, and it's a very clear example of discernment corporately, but discernment anyway, you know... um, yeah, but as on, a group, on a major issue. Yeah, as a group yeah. on a major issue, yeah. they were trying to decide whether or not they should become a religious order. Which yes. very often, when we read about the histories of orders, we think there was a founder. They gathered a group of people around him. They said, "Right, you be my followers. This is the order, and away we go." You're saying it wasn't like that at all. No, uh, that document actually records some of the reasons against becoming a religious order. I mean, they were very honest, but the state of religious life uh, was not flourishing at the time. In a way, it it was held in rather low esteem within the church. There were all sorts of reasons uh, against becoming a religious order. So they had to face those, first of all, in their own personal prayer. Then they faced it in the discussions or the sharing that that they had. And we are very fortunate to have a description of that because otherwise we'd have to guess. And I also find it interesting that they don't name anybody in that. So you never know when Ignatius's ideas are coming up or when the ideas are coming from some of the others. It's a very good example in that sense, too, of how corporate discernment should work, you know, not dominated by one strong personality or some ideas person, if you like, but that ultimately everybody listens with equal respect to everybody else and the decision comes out of that in in a prayerful atmosphere. You mention a few different aspects in the book of Ignatius even himself, the different elements of the complexity of the man. You also talk in the book about Ignatius the mystic, not something that we associate with the Ignatian tradition, it's much more associated with John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich, people like that. But you you would say to the contrary. I think most people would admit to the contrary too that Ignatius was a genuine mystic. A different kind of mystic, I think. He was a mystic that was non-traditional because he was living a non-traditional kind of religious life. Especially I'm speaking of the later mysticism when he was already a Jesuit and superior general. But historically, too, there there are reasons why that was either ignored completely or at least downplayed in the earlier years. 
because in the 16th century and coming up to the, uh, well, it was during the Reformation, the Council of Trent, there was a lot of suspicion of mysticism in the church at large, particularly in Italy. And so the early companions who survived Ignatius tended not to talk very much about the mysticism that Ignatius enjoyed. Can you just say, just for listeners, because you did say in the book that it's sometimes um, mysticism nowadays is very loosely described. What do we understand by mysticism? Well, broadly speaking, it has anything to do with our relationship with God on an experiential level is mystical, at least in a broad sense. For some special people, that is intensified and uh, that's where we have the great... doesn't mean that we're talking necessarily about extraordinary experiences or levitations or yeah, what often people do associate with it, but it's an intensity of the relationship with the persons of the Trinity, ultimately, with Father, Son and Spirit. That's the real mystical experience, and that's why the spiritual diary, I think, is, is so important, because it records some of that insofar as it can be recorded at all, you know, insofar as one can put words on something that is, to a large extent, beyond words. But Ignatius was open to that, and it seems clear that it was out of that mystical experience of God that he lived his life, that he made his decisions, that he, he discerned that that mystical relationship maybe even became sort of second nature to him, uh, that it wasn't something that was added on or the question was that from within, this, this is who he is. He was a person with this intense relationship with God. So that would be my main approach anyway to the question of mysticism. And it was only really after Vatican II that people began to, to look again at some of the sources and to say there's evidence here that Ignatius really was a mystic and it's worth exploring. Mm. And you also talk about Ignatius the Pilgrim. And one of the things that has often struck me reading about his life was that he walked enormous distances. We're talking hundreds of miles. And even in later times, when he got present of a horse, like he left it at home when he went to visit his castle and uh, he left the horse and then walked back a huge distance. Mm. People who run and walk sometimes have very interesting experiences. T talk to me about Ignatius the Pilgrim the Walker. Well, actually, he, he does talk, I think, in one place about... Um, seeing Christ hovering above him uh, on one of these walks that, that he was taking. I think walking, firstly, it was much more common uh, in his day, but he chose to, to walk when he could have taken a horse or <laughs> hitched a lift on a cart or something like that. So walking did fit into this image of himself as pilgrimage, is how he describes himself in the autobiography. I'm not sure that he ever revealed why he walked rather than took other means of transport. Uh, to me, it's, it's very much linked with poverty. Uh, the, the one outstanding virtue in the excess is poverty. And that was there from the very beginning. You could link it also, of course, with his penchant for visiting shrines. and that. So, But he would walk as a pilgrim, as was, was done in the Middle Ages. 
you'd walk to a particular shrine. And uh, those pilgrimages, uh, whether it's to a particular shrine or simply the pilgrimage of, of walking uh, itself without too much reference to a point of arrival. And that's something that uh, I think is well recognized nowadays, that the real pilgrimage is the journey, it's not the end point of arrival. So all of that meant an awful lot to him. I think he saw early on the link, the parallel between the outer journeys that he was taking on foot, mostly on foot, and the inner journey. I think that that played a big part in his life. He knew that he was on a journey, not just from Loyola to Venice to Rome or wherever, but that there was an inner journey going on as well, and that one threw light on the other. So walking, the reasons around it, or the values around it, I think are complex, and mm. perhaps we can't get fully into Ignatius's mind on, on that. On, yeah, I suppose I was struck when I was in Rome in the rooms where he stayed and where he died. But I find most moving and arresting was there's a little case with his shoes in it and they're quite small and they're very worn. There was just something about them that it just seemed to hold a whole story of of this man, that pilgrim who knew that there was some parallel between the walking he did and the journey he made in his own inner life. Yes, and his early companions shared all of that too, and the, whether it rubbed off on them from Ignatius himself or simply that it was part of a corporate awareness that they had of the values around pilgrimage and walking and constantly searching, exploring, as I call it in the book. There is something in the early society, and not just in Ignatius himself, that image of being on the road, being uh, on a journey, in poverty, yeah, that that was part of their ethos. And nowadays we have the huge resurgence in the Camino walking and people from all over the world and all sorts. And the thing I think is interesting that one or two people have said to me about it is that you can carry so little with you. You can't bring all the baggage we have of modern life and all the yes. things that we need. you just got to shed it. And there's something liberating maybe in that mm-hmm. as well. You've been studying Ignatius and you're a Jesuit and you have given spiritual exercises, you've done them, you're steeped in the whole Ignatian tradition and you've read and reflected and prayed as has come out in this book and particularly in the second half, helping other people to do that too. What, in essence, does Ignatius mean for you as a Jesuit? How do you relate to him? Well, I relate more to his spirituality maybe than to the man himself. I don't think I'd feel comfortable in the presence of Ignatius. I not. He had a he had a quite a number of quirks in his in his character. As general, when he was exercising authority, he could be quite authoritarian, in fact, and not always consistent in the way in which he treated people. Uh, so th- there are a number of aspects like that that uh, would make me, anyway, uh, a bit uncomfortable, I think, in, in his presence. But his spirituality is something else. I mean, I can see in him somebody, a flawed person, in whom the spirit was nevertheless working, working very deeply and working very fruitfully. And uh, that gives me a certain confidence, you know, that I see myself as a flawed person. 
I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit, uh, as in Ignatius, you know, is still able to work with me and in me and fruitfully. And maybe that's the way I see my relationship with Ignatius. If I want a companion, of course, in the early, from the early Jesuits, it'll be Pierre Favre, much more attractive. Isn't it interesting that we, that sometimes the way we expect saints to be perfect or whatever, and it's lovely that you don't have that expectation and that, I suppose, in a certain way, Ignatius didn't have it of himself either. He was what he was. I mean, he was a soldier also. You do talk a little bit about that in the book. Soldier, yes. I, I think perhaps even more influential, though it's, it's linked with it, is that he was an aristocrat. And this is why I think his authoritarianism came from. He was used to living in a society where the king of the castle was supreme. You know? And I think that in spite of his humility, in spite of his struggle against vainglory, which he admitted was his main temptation, especially in his earlier life, but I think it lasted. Some of that kind of more aristocratic side came out when he was exercising authority. I think he was a very different person when he was dealing with somebody, say, in uh, giving the spiritual exercises or spiritual direction all all of that. But this is why I'm always fascinated by the psychoanalytic explorations by uh, William Meissner of Ignatius, simply as a person, you know, and, and all the contradictory dynamics that were going on in him. I think that throws a lot of light on him as a person, not necessarily on his spirituality, but on, on him as a person. Some people resist that kind of approach. They say it's not appropriate, I think it's very appropriate if you if you want to learn who who he was. And finally, the title of your book is God Ever Greater. Yes, I wanted to put the emphasis on on God. One of the things I suppose as I age in this life, if I was asked kind of what is my main concern about Ignatian spirituality, I do be concerned about its authenticity. Is it maintaining its authenticity? in the way in which it is being used today. Particularly, uh, has it got over-psychologized? It's being used in circumstances where there is very little belief. And I just wonder how authentic some of that may be. I mean, for Ignatius, everything relates to God. (laughs) I mean, his worldview is... uh, Theocentric, God is at the centre, not the human person. Now, to be authentic in the Ignatian tradition, it seems to me, we must also be theocentric. Whereas the way in which Ignatian spirituality is sometimes presented, I would fear that it has become rather anthropocentric, the human person is at the centre. So these are the questions I kind of live with.